And I thought, you know, I kind of want to do what those extension agents are doing, right? Because I just love the fact that they had the opportunity to learn all of these things and then share their knowledge to help producers and help others. A whole new era of communication in the beef industry is coming soon. Now you have the brightest minds of the global beef industry right in your pocket. And what's best, you can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. Welcome to the Beef Podcast Show. My name is Dr. Stephanie Hansen. I'm a feedlot nutritionist at Iowa State University, and I'm excited to introduce our guest today, Dr. Mary Janowski from the University of Nebraska. Dr. Janowski joined UNL in 2014 as a beef system specialist with a 70% extension and 30% research appointment. She's a beef cattle nutritionist with expertise in forage-based production systems and a member of the interdisciplinary team evaluating economical systems for integrated crop and livestock production in Nebraska. She has authored 53 peer-reviewed journal articles and garnered over $5 million in grants. She has spent the last eight years researching and providing education on the use of crop residues and cover crop forage for backgrounding calves and feeding beef cows. In 2020, she received the Outstanding Young Extension Specialist Award from the American Society of Animal Science. Welcome to the podcast, Mary. Yeah, thanks, Steph. You made me sound really good. Well, that's my job as the one of the hosts. Make the make the guests look good. Some of it's harder for some than others, but you know we'll make it work for you. Thanks. <laughs> I um, should say to any of our listeners that um, Mary and I are actually best friends, so I can give her all of the crap that I want to. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I'm sure you're going to hear some things today that it will become clear that we know each other fairly well. Absolutely. And if you're um, watching the show on YouTube, I'm wearing my NC State sweatshirt today for the recording because that is actually where Mary and I uh, first became friends uh, back in graduate school when I was working with Jerry Spears in mineral nutrition and you were working with Matt Poor in forage nutrition. That's right. So I'm a forage nerd and uh, Steph is a mineral nerd. And the great thing is that we both get to learn from each other. Absolutely. And not incidentally, those are our handles on Twitter and Instagram, respectively. Oh, no, <laughs> mine's tw- actually cattle nerd. <laughs> yeah, hers is cattle nerd. So so she she tweets and I insta. So. <laughs> Um, let's actually start with your, your background, Mary, uh, cause I think you have a really unique background and it would be really useful for folks listening to have kind of an understanding of sort of the winding route that you took, um, that led, that led you to be in, uh, the university of Nebraska. So can you kind of give us a short, um, background of some of the kind of influential moments that led you here? Well, sure. So my, my first most influential moment was the moment when, I got a phone call. I was working as a bookkeeper (laughs) at a grocery store chain, and I got a phone call from Berea College. And uh, they said, you know, we've heard about you. We think you should apply. I was not going to go to college before that moment uh, because I didn't think I could afford it. And uh, I applied because I thought, oh, my gosh, that is the greatest thing ever because they had a, a setup where if you got in, you got full tuition scholarship. So Uh, I went to Berea College and I majored in ag and natural resources. And while I was there uh, for two years, I managed their cow-calf herd. And while I was managing their cow-calf herd, we had a visiting professor from New Zealand come. And I'm touring him around one day, the farm, and, and he's looking at our pastures. And he says, you know, you should consider stockpiling this fescue. And I said, what are you talking about, of course, because I'd never heard of it. So when he left, he got done with that tour. I went home and started Googling. (laughs) And uh, I Googled uh, about stockpiling fescue. And I thought, this sounds interesting. So I went to our department head and said, hey, I'd like to try this on 10 acres. So very, very small uh, amount of land. And uh, we came up with a plan. It's like I was going to sample, figure out what the yield was, what the quality was, and formulate uh, some diets for our cattle. And what I learned was that stuff was amazing quality for our dry cows. So I sold all of our good hay. I bought the crappiest hay we could find, uh, made a buttload of money that year uh, relative to what it would have cost uh, because I used it as a supplement and we strip grazed it. And I thought, why doesn't every producer do this? So then... 
I got to my senior year and I said, what am I going to do with my life? Uh, like every senior does. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I was like, well, I don't really know what I want to do. But one of the great things about Berea College was they would take us to every extension event within a hundred mile radius, it seemed like, because they had very few uh, faculty members. And so they wanted to expose us to more research and information. They thought extension was a great way to do that, which it is um, as an extension specialist, of course, uh, I will say that. Um, and I thought, you know, I kind of want to do what those extension agents are doing, right? Because I just love the fact that they had the opportunity to learn all of these things and then share their knowledge to help producers and help others. So I, again, I went to one of my professors and I said, I think I want to do this. And they, and they came back and they were like, well, they're now starting to require a master's degree. And I had no clue what uh, graduate research was like. Um, and I thought it was kind of like chemistry class. And that sounded horrible, right? as you can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he gave me the piece of advice to go look in the most recent Journal of Animal Science because he knew I was interested in uh, cow-calf. Um, and I looked and there was actually two people who had done some research on stockpiled fescue in the most uh, few recent um, issues. And one of them was retired and the other one was at NC State. Uh, so about a week later, of course, I hadn't done anything with that information, and it just so happened that a week later, I get called into the department head's office and he says, I think I have an opportunity for you. I just got a call from um, a technician out at NC State who is looking for a graduate student. And it turns out it was for the guy, Matt Poor, who uh, I was interested in working with. So it worked out really well. So that technician had went to Berea College. She had... Uh, talked Matt into letting her select the next student because she wanted one that had good work ethic and she knew that we had to, yep, so that she knew we had to work all, while we were going to school. So she thought we'd be very good at that. So I went and visited and uh, got the offer. So I went to NC State and worked on stockpiled fescue and novel endophyte fescue. Uh, so we did both winter grazing. Um, summer grazing, looked at reproduction, looked at persistence of the plants, kind of the whole system, which is what I really enjoyed. Um, and then I decided to stay on and get my PhD because I actually liked his job better than what the agents were doing because I got the opportunity to create new knowledge, which I thought was really cool. So I get to answer questions. Um, so I stayed on and I did a PhD where we looked at uh, supplementation frequency. So the idea was with stalker cattle, could we go and supplement, you know, two or three times a week and save on labor? And that was uh, a lot of fun. And then I got again to the end and said, what the heck am I going to do? Uh, there's no jobs open at the moment. And that's where Steph came in, actually, because she had went and interviewed at Iowa State for a position. And she'd heard about a postdoc position on sulfur toxicity. And she said, maybe you should apply. And so I did. And I got that job and I worked um, on sulfur toxicity in feedlot cattle uh, for a few years. And then I decided I should go and get a real job. Kind of kind of joking there, but uh, maybe stocks work hard. <laughs> yeah, we work hard for little pay. Um, so I decided to apply. There was a lot of jobs that were coming open. I applied for six positions and ended up going to there was one I didn't get an offer. And that was here at Nebraska, of all places, it was a teaching and research position. So I went and did a teaching and research position at Idaho, um, in Moscow, Idaho. And when I had gotten the call back from Nebraska to say I had not received the offer, they had told me they were having another position open that they thought I'd be really good for. And I thought they were just trying to let me down easy. But it turns out there was another position and it was the perfect job for me because when I got out of my PhD, um, if I had written my dream job, it would have been this job working in systems where I get to look at the whole picture. So not just cattle nutrition, 
but uh, being able to work with experts in soils, uh, forage production, and of course, the most important thing when we're talking about production, the economics. Um, so it's been a really great ride. I've learned a lot throughout um, all of this journey to get me here. And uh, hopefully um, you'll learn something today too. <laughs> So Mary and I both, we both believe very firmly that you end up where you're supposed to be and that the definition of luck is the ability to recognize an opportunity when it presents itself. So Mary's been really good at recognizing opportunities when they prevent, present themselves. So um, do you want to just super briefly tell us about the cluster hire that you were hired as a part of? Because I think that fits in with your notion of the systems work and your your note there about the economics. Yeah. So I think one of the things that is important for people outside of Nebraska to understand is that in Nebraska, we have one, if not the top, um, <laughs> cost for pasture uh, in terms of our rental rates, they are basically they've doubled over the last uh, decade. And that's because when we had, you know, the ethanol boom, basically any land that could be cropped uh, kind of came out of uh, pasture and went into cropland. And so that's pushed our pasture prices higher. And so uh, the university and, and frankly, even legislature saw that there was a real opportunity to think about capitalizing on uh, the forage resources that are available within cropland. So whether that's cover crops or use of, of crop residues. So they actually developed a white paper and hired three people to work together um, to help producers be able to utilize um, these forage resources that are available uh, within cropland. So they hired uh, a, uh, ag, um, a forage agronomist, a um, biosystems economist, and then me as a cattle nutritionist to work together. So in the job description, it was clearly articulated that we were going to be a team and that we were going to work together to solve um, these problems. And it has been a lot of fun because I get to learn every day something new. I didn't realize how much of an expert I'd become in soils uh, when I started this position. So uh, we're going to nerd out a little bit on some of the topics that we're both interested in. So I think we'll start with a micronutrients question, and then we'll kind of go from there. Um, one of, of the things micronutrients, <laughs> of course, I picked micronutrients. Um, so uh, one of your current PhD, PhD students, Hannah Spear, has been working on uh, vitamin A nutrition in cows. And I wanted to give you the opportunity to just tell the listeners a little bit about how ridiculously little we know about vitamin A requirements of cows and really just even a little bit of the history that digging into because you've you've gone across literal oceans and looked for these requirement information right from places in like Australia and South America. So can you kind of give us the, the short version of that? And Europe. Um, yeah, so I think I think the first thing to understand about me anyways, and actually Hannah, is we both have high learner in, in, in our top 10, if you know anything about Clifton Strength. So we actually enjoy the process of learning. Um, so it, what happened was we've been doing um, a lot more research and we've had a lot of producers that have been putting cows in confinement uh, in the summer. So they weren't going to be on green grass for long periods of time. And in fact, some of them never see green grass. And we started getting questions about vitamin A needs uh, because in those situations, there was a couple of producers that were starting to see clinical vitamin A deficiency signs. And that really led us down the road of, well, what are uh, the requirements, especially for beef cows? And... And the big difference between beef cows and dairy cows in my mind is that for beef cows, the cow is the key to providing the vitamin A to the calf. And in dairy cows, we kind of get around that because we use milk replacers and supplements. Um, so the research is not really there in the dairy world to figure out what do we got to give to the cow to get it to the calf. So there's a lot more information in, in the dairy world, but it doesn't really fit. Um, so... With with that in mind, the first thing we did is, of course, go to uh, the Nutritionist Bible, <laughs> the NRC or the NASM. Um, and we, I started by just reading it and going and getting all the papers that they cited. 
Okay. And, and the really interesting thing about that was that there were a total of three, three papers that had anything to do with beef cows. Okay. And they were, one was in the fifties, one was in the sixties and one was in the seventies. The first two had uh, basically hardly any cows involved in the situation. And the last one in the seventies had uh, about 300. But the problem was that in all of these, they focused on supplementing the cow during lactation to try to achieve the goal of getting the calf enough vitamin A. Well, so when I read this, I was trying to figure out how in the world did we come up with the recommendations that we have? Because there's nothing that's clear in those papers that tell us that, oh, this is how much we need to feed. In fact, it's the complete wrong time to be focusing on it. Uh, So then that's what started my journey out into um, other nations to see what maybe they knew um, that maybe just haven't been articulated in the U.S. And it comes, the bottom line is that most of the other nations are using recommendations that are based off of small ruminants. So whether it's Australia Cisco or whether it's the ARC, which is what uh, Europe uses, um, all of that is based off of small ruminants. And so then my, the natural question is, does it fit for our cows? Um, and <laughs> the other funny and interesting thing is that the few studies that we do have in beef cows, they were very different beef cows. One of them, the mature weight was 700 pounds. Can you imagine a 700 pound cow? So uh, the bottom line there is just to tell you that we really didn't have very much information and so a lot of what is in the NRC is just guesses for what we need to be feeding to a beef cow. Yeah, I think that's so interesting that, you know, really when the folks were writing those NRC chapters, they were basically forced to say, here's what we know, maybe if it's even from another species, and now we'll try to say, well, we can try to extrapolate from that. And But what we really need is the research to confirm whether or not that was the right choice, right? Um, so, well, first off, we'll give a little pitch that um, her uh, Mary's PhD student, Hannah, will be graduating in the spring of 23. So she will be looking to be gainfully employed if anybody's looking for an awesome PhD nutritionist coming out of a forage program. Um, so, Mary, tell us a little bit about some of the highlights of the work and maybe focusing, too, on some of the collaborative work that you've done, because that's, I think, one of the cool opportunities with you there in Lincoln. You've had the opportunity to work with the U.S. Meat Animal Research Center as well. There's some great resources there. Yeah. So I was having a chat one day with Harvey Freetley and I was lamenting about what we did not know <laughs> about vitamin A. And so I'm, I'm talking to him and we're just discussing this. And then he goes, well, I can go cow shopping. <laughs> and I was like, you want to do a project? He's like, well, sure. If, you know, if Hannah can come down and, uh, and feed the cows, I'm, I'm sure we can make something happen. So um, I had already, Hannah and I actually, and Hannah had wrote a grant to um, Great Plains uh, Livestock Consulting to get a little bit of money to do a project with some confined cows that we had out at Scott's Bluff with Carla Wilkie. And so we basically took that same type of idea and we proposed to feed um, basically four different levels. So the NRC and then start moving up from there. But um, that one kind of failed a little bit <laughs> because the pellet that we got, we got from a commercial uh, a commercial mill and the levels in the pellet was not what they had on the tag. <laughs> so we ended up actually feeding a lot lower levels uh, than we had proposed. In fact, uh, we were feeding below NRC all winter to these cows who came off of green grass. So first thing you have to understand is in this situation, it's essentially what uh, most beef producers would be thinking of. These cows were on green grass for seven months and then they came in and then they got fed uh, hay, in this case, alfalfa hay with a little bit of corn silage and some grass hay. Okay. And then we were supplementing uh, levels of vitamin A that were much lower than NRC up to about NRC. 
And the the big take home from that particular study was that those cows came in, they had really good stores in their liver of vitamin A. And yes, they did decline over the winter, but they were still what we would consider um, high to adequate in their liver stores. And yet when we sampled the calves 30 days after birth, those calves would have been considered deficient. So they were actually quite low. And in fact, lower than the threshold, we have very little data, but some of the data would suggest in, in young calves at that age, we'd want to be like 75 um, parts per million of vitamin A, and we were uh, somewhere around 50. So, and that would be in the liver, correct? Yep. So we did sample, liver is the only way to go, just to just to be clear. I think that's really important for people to understand is that blood levels don't really tell you what you need to know in terms of vitamin A. And so, and the other thing that I really think is important, especially for producers to understand is that the colostrum is the main source of vitamin A to the calf. So if the calf is born and let's say it's weak um, and it doesn't nurse or the calf is born dead, sampling the liver is worthless. And I see this happen sometimes where somebody will do that thinking, well, I want to see if that's the problem. And the, the issue is that, of course, they're low. They haven't got colostrum yet. And so uh, there may be uh, really low liver levels, and it may have nothing to do with a vitamin A deficiency. Um, so I think that's also really important. So the colostrum is key. What we learned um, while we were doing this study is I had this mindset or this paradigm, and I would say that most nutritionists have a very similar paradigm to me. And that was that if you had a cow and she had good liver stores, that she could supply enough to the calf through the colostrum, that everything would be fine. So where we run into trouble in my mind was if a cow didn't have good stores going into the winter and we didn't supplement enough, then the calf wouldn't get enough. So that was my my paradigm. And then my paradigm completely was blown apart by this study <laughs> because what we learned is the cow can have really good status, um, but it still cannot supply. Uh, hi, kitty cat. Um, <laughs> but... Even if the cow has good liver stores, she can't supply enough in the classroom to the calf. We are dependent on dietary vitamin A levels to supply some to the colostrum and the calf. In fact, when I say some, um, after Hannah went and did some more research, she found two studies in the dairy world. Luckily, they're very old studies, which means that their milk production was more similar to our current beef cows, like 30 pounds uh, a day kind of maximum milk production. So just just to be clear, it's very, very similar. And they found that 60% of the vitamin A in the colostrum was coming from a dietary source and 40% was coming from um, the liver stores. So in both of those studies, those numbers came out very, very similar. Um, so that makes me believe that the diet that you're feeding that cow uh, during late gestation is extremely important to supplying enough vitamin A to the calf. So that was the first thing we learned. Well, I think that there's, so there's a couple of points to reiterate there. One, sometimes science doesn't go the way that we expect it, you know, stuff happens. And this was ended up actually being a really cool study in the sense that, you know, you, you maybe wouldn't have even been able to get away at that particular place to feed something less than NRC. And you certainly didn't intend to do that. But you did. And you learned this really cool thing. And so some of the, the calf stuff that you were referencing there might be back to some of like Jody McGill's work here at Iowa State, where when she depletes dairy calves of vitamin A status, so by, by not letting them have vitamin A containing colostrum, right, she can basically they're born low and she keeps them low and they don't have as good of outcomes for things like respiratory disease. And so it's it's not just this academic question here, folks. This is something that would be super applicable if you had any kind of disease challenge or kind of question the thriftiness of these animals. Oh, well, actually, so if we're talking about the symptoms of vitamin A deficiency, especially what I'd call subclinical, like so you're not having blind calves, um, diarrhea is also a very common one. And that can er happen as early as eight days. And it's because, so diarrhea and respiratory disease are the two 
um, most common issues with vitamin A deficiency. And it's because vitamin A is extremely important um, for epithelial health. So basically, any, any of the tissues that are rapidly growing, um, so if you think about the gut and you think about the lungs, both of those um, are uh, really, really important barriers, right, to uh, keep the things out that we don't want in the body. And if you're a vitamin A deficiency, they're not as good at doing that. So, okay, before we move on to talk about maybe some of the work from Hannah's other study um, that she did at Scott's Bluff, and then maybe we can go down kind of a confined cow route there, because I think that would be really relevant to listeners as well. Um, I did want to circle back for a second and ask you this question of, if I'm a producer and I'm thinking about, you know, wintering cows here starting now, basically in December of 22, knowing that there was widespread drought in a lot of places, do you think my cows have good vitamin A status right now? Or or what were your recommendations on that? Yeah. Okay. So um, first thing to understand, the reason why Steph was talking about drought and the same reason why we were talking about in confinement uh, is that when cows are on green, fresh green pasture, uh, it has a lot of beta carotene in it, which is what the cattle can use to make vitamin A. So fresh green pasture is a great source. And in fact, if you look at fresh green pasture compared to even really green hay, because everybody thinks green hay is a good source of vitamin A, um, the difference is about 14-fold right? So it is extremely um, different in terms of their concentrations. In fact, if we think about uh, fresh green pasture, it's way above requirement. They'll make a good stores, but even like a diet that's a hundred percent green hay is unlikely to actually meet the cow's need um, alone. So the reason why she asked about drought is what happens as the plant uh, starts dying or turning brown. And that is um, an easy way to think about it is color is a great indicator of beta carotene. So if it's green, it has more beta carotene, but fresh is really an important part to that equation. Um, so even green hay is not a great source. And as it starts turning browner and browner, it's worse and worse. And essentially uh, brown hay is devoid of vitamin A for, for um, all practical purposes. So for this drought situation, the problem is that a lot of our pastures, you know, turned brown earlier. So you had a shorter green, uh, fresh green grass grazing period. So your question's a good one. And basically, I would, I would assume that they're going to go in with lower stores into this winter. And um, regardless of those lower stores, it, I also think it's extremely important to be thinking about what are we providing during that late gestation period. So now we have not only... Um, a lack of good stores, but we also have this issue where we need the diet to be providing enough to the calf beyond the store question. So vitamin A is one of the, the nutrients that we could potentially provide through a needle. There's only a handful of those options and stuff. So vitamin A, vitamin E, and then some of the trace minerals. Um, what, or maybe some vitamin C as well, what would be your thoughts on, and, and maybe nobody's looked at this, you not not really sure, but any thoughts on, you know, is this something better to try to fix in the diet? Is it something that could be used with an injection or is that not really a long-term solution? Oh, it's a good question. So I would say uh, it's an easy answer for the cow and the, and the answer is for the cow. Um, if I think about uh, how much vitamin A I'm providing and how frequently I'd have to give it to support her, it, it's it's not going to happen. However, the the question I think that most people are asking is, well, could I give the cow a shot, you know, in late gestation and supply the calf, or should I just give the calf a shot, and will that do? Um, and and I don't know the answer to how much benefit the calf gets from a, a, a shot um, in terms of meeting its needs long term. I don't think it it hurts anything and it's not super costly. So if you're already going to work the calf, I mean, it's kind of like insurance. It's the same thing as providing, you know, a mineral and vitamin supplement. In many ways, you're really thinking about uh, how good of an insurance policy do I want. But I'm a really 
really cautious about recommending that as the sole methodology to, uh, so it's your only insurance, right? Uh, because I think it would be like a very bottom level insurance policy, if that makes sense. So I'd be looking at trying to provide enough to the cow in late gestation to make sure her colostrum is well fortified. And then um, I might also decide, yeah, I'm going to do this extra insurance policy and give um, a shot to that calf. So that's kind of my thought process right now. I don't have a lot of data to be definitive about that answer, but um, you were just asking for my somewhat informed uh, advice, and that would be my somewhat informed advice. <laughs> I love it. You folks in Extension can give all, courses, all sorts of somewhat informed advice. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> um, I do think, you know, I always, of all the times in cattle production, it seems like the wintering cow, you know, the late gestation cow is the one that we ignore the most. And it's the one where we have the biggest opportunity to get so many bangs for our buck, right? Like from a micronutrient standpoint, from an energy and protein standpoint, she's not only grow, either maybe growing if she's a young two or three-year-old still, but or a more mature cow who's just at maintenance, but she's also developing that fetus, right? And then on top of that, within you know several weeks of calving, we expect her to bounce back and breed. And it seems like that is such an opportunity to narrow in and learn more about what these cows really need for their nu nutrient requirements that not only will benefit the calf having a successful start to life, but will also help that cow breed back. Yeah. And, and one thing you hadn't mentioned was really the fetal programming aspects. Um, so how that nutrition impacts uh, the genes and thus uh, the phenotype of, of that calf. And so, I, yeah, I think there's all kinds of opportunity for us to, to learn and um, grow in our knowledge and, and help our, our production uh, systems. So I, I think today's theme is, is maybe uh, a lot of times in our extension conversations, we tell you all the things we know and give you the best guess. And it sounds like we have all the answers and I think uh, today's theme is just helping you guys realize we don't have all the answers, but uh, every time that we go out, we're trying to learn new things that will provide uh, better and better information. Absolutely. And you mentioned before about one of the things that Nebraska is not proud to be number one in beef, and that is being highest in pasture rates, right? Nobody wants to be the highest in pasture rental rates when you're trying to raise cows. Um, but that is something that is a reality there in Nebraska and in many parts of the country. We're high here in, in Iowa as well. Um, but how has that led to some unique research opportunities, thinking about some of the cow confinement um, operations that sort of sprung up, especially in a time when when corn got high, feedlots started to maybe shutter a few things or a few things shifted. And, you know, all of a sudden there were some opportunities maybe to feed the cows indoors, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, maybe not indoors. Uh, most, most of our open lots, um, most of our feedlots are open lots in Nebraska. And that's most of the systems that we're seeing, but you, you set it up well in the thought process was we had uh, a lot of smaller uh, feedlots who, you know, were under capacity or maybe even, as you said, kind of uh, shut down. And then we have this really high pasture prices and we have all this cropland. And all three of those things, if you put it, the puzzle pieces together, there was an opportunity to take the cows and in the summer when you're growing the crops put them into confinement and then in the fall winter and early spring put them out on cropland so corn residue which is actually in my job description which is kind of funny it's not very sexy but it's in my job description because it's an extremely valuable resource for us in nebraska and i would argue uh, a lot of the Midwest, and it's underutilized for sure. Um, in Nebraska, if if one of our problems is that all the cows are kind of farther west and all the uh, corn residue is further east, um, and so there's some opportunities there to have younger producers come in and you know take cow care during the winter and those types of things. But the system is really about in the summer, in confinement, in the winter, you know, maybe uh, fall cover crop or go out on the 
uh, crop residue and in the spring go on to like rye, so cover crop on to soybean acres because soybeans don't produce uh, much residue and what it does produce you want to keep out on the land. Uh, <laughs> I think that's really important. Um, and it's actually very high r erosion potential. So why not put some cover on there and get some feed at the same time? Um, but now let's talk about the confinement period. Okay, so now we've got a situation where we're putting beef cows in dry lot for six, seven months. And so one of the first things that we realized is we sure don't want to be calving into the mud in the spring. Um, so a lot, and there are producers who do it, um, and, and some of them do it quite well, uh, but a lot of them and and what we did as well was kind of switch our calving season to be like late summer so that that was kind of our driest period and the very first year we did a project here in eastern nebraska it was the wettest two months our calving season was the wettest of those two months that we had had in over two decades so we basically had like uh what it would be like in the spring and the problems with that, I'm sure everybody understands the mud issue, um, you know, uh, actually having coccidia was our biggest issue with that. But in the in the years that followed, uh, we had more traditional weather patterns and that worked fairly well. A couple things that we learned was that um, young calves need shade because they're not very good at regulating their body temperature. And then the other thing is that while we were doing this, we we knew that combining low quality corn residue, so baled stocks, with uh, abundant uh, distillers uh, was a great marriage, right? So you have this stuff that's not super palatable, but fairly cheap. And then you have distillers, which is cow candy, that is high energy, high protein. You put it together and you can limit feed those cows and make a, a low cost uh, ration. So, it, and what I mean by that is per day, how much you actually cost to feed her can be um, quite good. The issues that came up was, well, if you're limit feeding the cow, then what about the calf? Because when the calf is about 90 days of age, they're eating about 1% of their body weight. So, in these situations, if if those cows are cleaning up within two hours, how does that affecting the calf growth? So some of the other questions we've asked, of course, is about should we be creep feeding those calves um, or should we just feed more to the cow and assume the calf's getting some and the calf will come up and, and eat with the cows. We do have to have enough bunk space for that to happen. Um, we suggest at least two foot, um, two and a half is better. Uh, but I will say that one of the best investments we ever made was we actually took some more bunk space and and actually made a creep area for the calf and fed a separate diet for the calves. And that has paid back in terms of economics. Uh, even, even when we feed a little bit higher quality diet to those calves, you know, some higher quality forage so we don't get as much room and fill so we can get a little bit more nutrients into them, uh, it pays back to do that. So you also kind of stumbled onto something that tied back to some of your postdoc work, right, with uh, dealing with some of the antagonistic pressure of high sulfur in some of those co-products. So the combination of limit feeding and then feeding some relatively high sulfur diets, what were some of the challenges that you've picked up with that? Yeah, so um, the, the first thing to recognize is I think it's a combination of high sulfur, high nitrogen, and uh, high potassium. So uh, because distillers actually has all of those uh, in fairly high amounts. But what we were seeing is that we were getting basically grass tetany. For those of you who know what that is, that's basically magnesium deficiency. And it's not because the diet was actually low in magnesium. It was just like a similar situation to out on fresh, green, cool season pastures in early spring that are high in nitrogen and high in potassium. Well, we have the added bonus of high sulfur, which also interferes with magnesium absorption in the rumen. So what we were having was a situation where we had plenty of magnesium in the diet, but it was not getting absorbed. And so we were seeing when these cows were lactating on those diets, we would get um, sometimes it would just be, you know, the cow was aggressive and maybe a little bit twitchy. But then every now and then you'd have one die. 
And uh, after some sampling of actually the herd, we started realizing, wow, you know, they're low. And we had some producers that were seeing the same thing. And so I kind of dug into it and, oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So we were getting low magnesium. Well, what's the solution? Everybody knows the solution. We just add more magnesium into the mineral. The problem is that we were using a co-product balancer mineral, um, which is formulated mostly for feedlot situations. You know, it's it's high calcium, which is what we need because we have a high phosphorus diet, um, but it doesn't have a lot of magnesium in it. So we learned that we really did need to have a, a custom mineral made for lactating cows on high co-product diets. I'll also tell you for producers who are like, well, I don't use that stuff. The other one where I saw it um, several times were producers who had lactating cows in confinement for some reason. It may be that just pastures aren't ready yet, and they were feeding a lot of alfalfa. So alfalfa hay can also be high nitrogen and high potassium, and sometimes you'll run into that. So just make sure that if you have a lactating cow, you're feeding a lot of um, distillers or you're feeding a lot of alfalfa, that you go ahead and go on a high mag mineral. Yeah, I think... I think we think the sulfur and magnesium probably forms some sort of precipitate there in the rumen that prevents it from being absorbed. But um, I think just reinforcing too that limit feeding cattle by definition means you can't think of it just as, oh, the concentration of magnesium in the diet is this, or the concentration of zinc in the diet is this, or copper. You've got to be thinking about, you know, the dose, right? Like how many, how many milligrams or whatever do you need to get in there per day? And so that was an important lesson. It felt like a lot of people were learning, you know, I can, I might be limit feeding so that they're only getting 15 or 18 or 20 pounds of dry matter a day, but I better make sure I concentrate the things that I still need to her to get into that. And then keeping in mind things like behavioral challenges, competition at the bunk, cows might be extra bored if they only eat for an hour a day. <laughs> I limit feed my cows during the winter. So I see them, you know, being like, oh, let me sit and rub on this shed for an hour. <laughs> yeah. So I do think uh, with limit feeding, you, you did mention a couple things that are really, really important. One is, yeah, you need to think on a milligram or gram, depending on uh, micro or macro minerals. Um, the other thing is that we, we p- typically want to be at uh, a minimum of 1.5% of body weight in terms of intake. And that's with some very low quality forage. So something that's going to stay in the room in a little bit longer. And then we don't get the abnormal behaviors. Um, so we have seen in some situations where people were getting like tongue rolling or something like that. And that's usually because they were either at a lower uh, percent of body weight or uh, those cows were had like a higher quality uh, roughage. And so they were feeling hungrier earlier, if that makes sense. They do adapt. One of the other things that's just really important about limit feeding is just like in feedlot cattle, be consistent about the time of day that you feed. Um, and they will just come to expect it at that time. And so they, they are less unsatisfied, if that makes sense. So it's not really about like digestive upset. It's more about behavior, if that makes sense. So I do think that's also important. Yeah. Okay, so you talked a little bit about grass tetany, which is one of the kind of classic challenges with grazing that we think about, usually associated with like rapid, lush spring growth, etc. What are some of the other forage challenges that you've been thinking about? (laughs) Okay, Um, so the other one that uh, has come up, um, you know, in the past five years was was nitrate toxicity. So, um, if I think about, uh, situations where we're using a lot of cover crops, um, or annual forages, all annuals are great nitrate scavengers. (laughs) And so one of the things that was, that was happening is I was getting all of these emails or calls from producers with tests that were coming back really, really high in nitrates. And they're like, what do I do? (laughs) <laughs> Can I still use this? That's always the question, right? And especially with uh, late summer planted stuff, like so something after seed corn or corn silage and, and it's growing into cooling conditions, they were coming up with levels that were really, really high. Like, okay, so just to give everybody the same basis, most extension has a threshold that's about 2,100 parts per million nitrate nitrogen as 
that's where they say that's toxic. Anything over that you, you don't want to use or you have to dilute. And these guys were coming up with some of them. I even had some that were 20,000. Um, that one I kind of told the guy, yeah, I don't think you should use this. Uh, but <laughs> after probably, uh, you know, the 20th one that I got, I said, huh, I wonder, because I had been doing a lot of research grazing, uh, growing calves out on late summer planted stuff. And, and I was like, huh, I wonder what ours was. <laughs> Cause guess what? I never tested it. So I went back to our samples and um, had actually uh, Beth Reynolds was my master's student at the time. And uh, she now works for Iowa State as a uh, an extension specialist. I was trying to think of what a program coordinator. Program. Uh, but anyway, so she was actually the one who uh, took on the nitrate uh, question. But she went and analyzed those samples for us. And the surprising thing was that only one out of the six trials that we had done had levels of nitrate that were below that 2,100 parts per million threshold. All the rest of them were higher than that. We had as high as 8,000 parts per million. So, of course, the, the high learner in me said, why? <laughs> and why did we not have a problem? How can they do so, uh, of course, you know, what do you do? You go back into the literature and uh, you learn uh, very quickly that there are some key limitations to what we currently know, as well as some really important things to understand how to assess risk. And so if I were to to say one thing about our current um, extension documentation on nitrates, it's that we try to make it too simple. And I think because of that, we do an injustice. Because often you'll come to the conclusion you can't use something when you might be able to, dependent on the situation. And so there's some key things that people need to know and understand. One that's really, really important is that fresh forages are much less toxic than dry forages. And that's for two uh, reasons. One is that it releases the nitrates at a slower rate, which means it allows the bacteria that um, take nitrite to ammonia, so basically detoxifying it, um, to keep up with the nitrate to nitrite conversion. So, so that's really important because the slower it comes in, the less likely you're going to have a buildup of the toxic compound. The other thing is that fresh forages also tend to be higher quality. The amount of energy in the diet also affects how much of um, those bacteria that convert nitrite to ammonia um, are there because they'll grow and multiply if nitrite's available and energy's available. It's just like the cow. They both need carbon and, and nitrogen. Well, it's carbon and nitrogen. So we can reduce risk by having a higher energy diet, like feeding grain. There's some really great work from Oklahoma, um, way back when, where they actually just fed cows uh, three pounds of corn or six pounds of corn and basically showed they could decrease methemoglobin, which is the reason why nitrates are toxic. It Basically, the nitrite gets into the bloodstream and it doesn't allow uh, the cow's blood to carry oxygen because it becomes methemoglobin and that can't carry oxygen. So the cows suffocate, um, even though they can breathe oxygen, the blood isn't able to carry it to uh, the body, if that makes sense. So in this case, providing more energy can help uh, reduce the risk. And so higher quality forages are also lower risk because they have more roomly available energy. And then there's a couple other important things. One is that brassicas, which is a, a common cover crop and often in the mix of things that producers were sending me that were really, really high, they're amazing nitrate scavengers. Um, that's why crop producers put them in, <laughs> is to keep the nitrates from leaching down uh, through the soil profile. And as a consequence, they're high in nitrates. But they're also kind of like if you were to put alfalfa and corn silage in a river, um, that's kind of the nutrient content of them. They're very high energy they're very high protein because they're also high nitrates, um, which is nitrogen. So it'll come up as protein. Um, but they also have high sulfur, which interferes with uh, nitrate conversion. So 
they kind of have their own little risk management strategy built in. And then the other thing, as we kind of talk about, is that rate of intake matters. And so in situations where they're grazing, as long as you don't put hungry cattle out or have a situation where they're restricted and then get to start eating again, um, you're much lower risk, especially if you allow them to be selective because they'll eat the tops of the plants, which tend to be less uh, higher in nitrates than the lower parts, and they can work their way into it, building up the population of bacteria that um, will detoxify it for you. So I think we've concentrated on the situation with hay and hay is the highest risk and it's highest risk for multiple reasons. Um, But one of the things that happens, I think a lot of times is that we'll have like a hot bale. So that 2100 is probably a great number for hay. And the reason is because if it's an average of a lot, you can have like an area in your field that, you know, is a little bit droughtier than other areas. And so it will be higher in nitrate and you tend to bale those areas together. And then you have one bale that's a lot higher in nitrate than others. You put it out in a bale feeder one day and cows who are not used to having a really high nitrates, they get really high nitrates and, you know, they die, <laughs> which is no fun. Um so it, it's probably, it's conservative, uh, I would say, as a number, but it's probably right on for situations where we can have that particular thing happening. If we have situations where producers do a really good job of separating parts of the field out that are droughtier versus others, we could probably go a little bit higher and work our way into it. The other one, I just talked to a guy the other day who he kind of limit feeds a little bit. He's mixing two hay sources, one that's higher in nitrate, one that's lower. And he said, well, I had to go take some cows to um, sell barn. And so I didn't get fed on time that day. And I came out and there was a cow who was dead. And he said, I think I just, I looked and there was a lot of stems left in the bunk. And I think she just ate a lot of those stems while she was waiting because she was hungry and, um, you know, those stems would have that high nitrates in there and in their low energy. So there is some risk. We do have to think about management, but there's a lot of things that we can do that's different, I think, than what most people think. It's not a number. It's, it's a lot of numbers depending on the situation. I think the vitamin A and the nitrate conversation are so interesting because they're two examples of again, where there just hasn't been a lot of research done. And, you know, one report gets written and another report gets written, but they kind of just use the same data from the prior report. And 20 years later, we don't have any methods in there anymore. So we don't really know how that report was generated. And so I just, yeah, it's just interesting. One of the challenges and, and absolutely we need to know more about understanding, especially if we continue to have these persistent drought years and stuff, or thinking about the advent of more people using cover crops and thinking about brassicas and stuff. This is, you know, from grass tetany to nitrate management, this is going to be something that's only going to be more important in the future. Yeah. So before we, before we end this, I want to go back to vitamin A because I want to talk about, okay, the second trial that we did at Scott's Bluff, what we had is we had cows who had been in confinement for multiple years in a row we had been feeding NRC, so 36,000 international units. We sampled those cows, and they were all extremely low in vitamin A. <laughs> and we had had a lot of cows drop out of the system over time um, or calves that died. And can't tell you definitively that that was the problem, but just to understand, um, it wasn't exactly you know the most productive herd in the world. Uh, So then we decided that in mid-gestation, so basically uh, about normal weaning time, we put them on trial where we started feeding them either NRC uh, three times or five times NRC. And for that period of time, so basically 150 days, they were fed these diets and then we sampled, we sampled over time, but the big thing you need to understand is that at the 30 days of age for the calves, we sampled the cow and the calf. And the uh, 93,000 international units per day is what made the cow uh, inadequate status and the calf be above um, 
the threshold for being adequate. So we know that that's kind of a good level for these diets that are um, really low in vitamin A to get them up to where we need them. The question now becomes, what do we need to do to maintain, right? So I don't know for sure that we would actually need to be feeding quite that high of level if the cow was in good status uh, during that late gestation to make the calf where we want it, right? Um, but we did need to at least get there to get them uh, to get them both where we wanted them in this particular situation. So currently, what I tell my producers who are doing confinement, especially those who don't have uh, any green grass grazing, is we're shooting for about seventy five thousand international units per day is what they're being supplemented um, throughout. The gestating cow and late gestation is probably the most important. Um, because colostrum is the big use of vitamin A for the cow. And then um, everybody sees that there's a higher requirement for lactation. I honestly don't really truly understand why that number is so much higher. Um, it's 36 versus like I think 52,000 international units per day. Um, because after that early colostrum, uh, milk really doesn't have a lot of vitamin A in it. Yeah, I wonder if some of that's related to the functions of vitamin A in the cow. So less about how much vitamin A needs to get to the milk and more about all the stuff that vitamin A is supporting from like an um, anti-inflammatory and other things, right, happening in that cow maybe? Yeah, so probably to do with pregnancy and some of those things as well, like got rapidly growing cells in terms of the fetus and all of that. I don't know. Yeah. Well, okay. So it's been super fun to talk to you in a um, like beef podcast setting because uh, we're actually co-hosts on a uh, podcast called Mentoring Matters, where we talk about the things we've learned and tried to improve upon about learning how to be graduate student mentors. Um, but this has been fun to just get to chat with you more about our science. It is time to our famous three. So... We are moved on to our lightning round here. We've got three questions for you. So are you ready for this? No, but go right, right ahead. <laughs> okay. So I question number deliberative. I don't like like uh, questions that I have to answer right away. No, I'm just kidding. Right, right. Mary and I are both clearly uh, Clifton Strengths nerds. I'm actually a certified coach, and we talk about our grad students um, with strengths a lot and stuff. So when she's talked about learner and deliberative, those are some of her high Clifton Strengths. Okay. Ready? Number one. What is your favorite beef resource? So I, I think the one that I would want to point our listeners to is actually our Beef Watch podcast. Um, that's where uh, all of my colleagues in Nebraska Extension, as well as actually we have producer perspective. So we'll have producers on the podcast um, talking about what they do and their thoughts. And so the Beef Watch podcast is one that if I'm looking for a beef podcast, I often listen to really to catch up on what others are doing and learn a little bit about um, things that I will get questions about periodically. So it's been useful to me. Very nice. All right. Question number two, what is a book not related to beef that you are currently reading? And we should insert a laugh track here because I know you really well and you probably have 10 nonfiction books on your to be read pile sitting next to your bed. I, yes, I do. Um, uh, at least 10. And, <laughs> and uh, well, I just finished Grit, which was a, a great book to really help me think about um, what makes somebody successful and also uh, to think about things I want to develop in terms of skills. But right now I'm reading Impact Players, um, which is really a book where the author had interviewed, I think it was 170 managers and ask them about their employees that um, just went above and beyond. You know, they're the people that when they need somebody to take care of something that's really important, who do they go to and why? And it was a, it's a really interesting read because it really talks about what are the things that is going to make you super successful in your career, in your life in general. Um, and, and one of those is... Uh, doing the job that needs to be done, not necessarily the job that's in your job description. And I think that is a great thing to think about because a lot of times I think we get too worried 
about the fact, well, it's not my job. Um, and, and there's a key to success is, is just bringing value. Right. And so I think that, that kind of, uh, hit home for me. Cause I was like, yeah, that's exactly it. It's like, see a need, fill the need, um, do good things. Nice. Okay. So that would be, um, grit by Angela Duckworth and then, uh, impact players by Liz Weisman. Is that right? Liz Weisman. Yep. Liz Weisman. Gotcha. All right. Third and final question. What is a trait of someone you know that has allowed them to be successful? <laughs> I laughed about this one because I was like, uh, I got to pick somebody that's not you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so as I was thinking about traits, oftentimes I, I look at others to think about what do they do that I envy, so to speak, right? They seem to do it so naturally. So um, one thing that I have noticed is that some people are really good at providing a vision and making others see it. And so uh, they're able to basically get a whole team together around this idea because they can help them see that vision. And then uh, the team, you know, they get excited about it and they will push things forward. That person may not have to put a lot more effort into it. And I'm a, uh, an executor, like I just do things like, so I might be one of those team members, but I'm usually not one of those leaders who just, you know, comes up with this idea and helps everybody else see the vision. And so I think it's really, really great thing. It's something that I'm going to continue to strive to grow my abilities in. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Mary, and being with us. This has been really great. Yeah, well, I appreciate the opportunity to get to talk about some of my passions, which is uh, beef cows and, of course, uh, systems. Awesome. Thanks again for being here.